Hey everyone, Kyle here. With the holiday season upon us, Lolita and I have decided to take some time off. So we're replaying our top five most downloaded episodes over the next five weeks. We'll start airing new episodes again in the beginning of 2022. Lolita and I wish all of you a very happy holiday season, and we hope you enjoy catching up on these top episodes. Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by APT Capital Group, where Kyle and Lalita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. On the show with us today, we have James Crowley. James, thanks so much for being here. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you both? We are doing great. Well, let's go ahead and get started. James is a multifamily specialist in Marcus and Millichap's Tucson office. As senior associate, he is exclusively represents buyers and sellers of multifamily investment properties throughout Southern Arizona. James has more than three years of experience in the real estate industry and has closed over 60 investment real estate transactions valued at over $380 million during his career. Listeners, get your paper and pen handy because we're going to get into the mind of a broker and see what it takes for these brokers to send you deals and want to work with you. With that being said, James, can you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Well, gosh, I mean, with that such a great introduction, there's little left for me to say. Um, <laughs> I am a investment uh, associate in the multifamily realm uh, under Mark Similichap, um, part of a broader group that was put together um, with the intention of handling uh, basically all facets of multifamily in Arizona from an eight unit in Tucson up to a $200 million portfolio in Phoenix. Um, I've got several other partners that collectively, you know, the group is called David Gebbing, but uh, me personally, I handle the sub 100 space. Uh, it's kind of my specialty in the Tucson market. Um, you know, I've been doing that since 2015 when I graduated from the university of Arizona, uh, did the sales internship program. I got connected with my partner Hamid and, uh, you know, it's been 60 transactions, $380 million. It's, it's been a, a good time to be, to be a part of this uh, collective. It's very impressive. Perfect. So I'm sure being in such a hot market right now makes it difficult for brokers to compete for business, just like it is for investors, right? So can you talk about some of the challenges brokers have in this area? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's not so much competing from a, you know, I think, from a team perspective and me personally, I think we have the, the tools uh, to be dangerous and uh, far outperform uh, when we are competing. It's, it's certain things when, you know, sellers decide to do certain things off market or uh, principal to principal transactions, things like that, that, that really hurt, uh, I guess, our core business. I don't typically work buy side, uh, just it's kind of a mantra from a team perspective that we we work on high probability brokerage, which is through the exclusive listing process, um, and that's always you know our our platform has always netted our sellers the highest dollars. 
Right. So how do brokers go about getting business? I mean, are you doing direct mail to, uh, to, to owners out there or, or what else are you doing to get business? Uh, it's a combination of, of a lot of things. Uh, in the early stages, you're, you're doing a lot of phone calls. You're basically just trying to touch every piece of real estate and talk to every single owner in the market. Um, it's a relationship business. There are a lot of people that are more transactional in nature, but I think for long-term success for this to be more of a residual based income where, you know, not only do you have market share, but you're handling things on the acquisition for someone and then the disposition three to five to seven, 10 years later. Uh, a lot of that starts from building those foundations on the front end. Uh, there are people that are, you know, quote unquote dinosaurs who haven't sold in 20, 30 years. I, uh, I just closed a deal for a guy who owned it since 1964. So, a lot of that is, you know, mail campaigns and phone calls and touches that, you know, just it, 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 it for any reason that Coca-Cola advertises, you know, they don't necessarily have to, but you want to make sure that when someone does have that thought that you're the one that they think of. How can investors compete in such a hot environment while still being conservative for their investors and in their underwriting? I just know that Phoenix and Tucson and, you know, there's tons of other markets out there. They're just going through the roof. But at the same point, it's, it's important not to overpay for your product. Right. I mean, I, I, my suggestion to buyers is always to stick to your guns. Um, I typically, you know, we do very well in our positioning and thinking outside the box, but, you know, we're never reckless or aggressive. I think the biggest thing that can be advantageous to a buyer is to set themselves apart, whether that's through uh, providing the broker to be, you know, the proper ammo to put them in the best position with the, the seller. Now that could be a combination of things, uh, proof of funds, um, any sort of references from other brokers that they've worked with. And then certainly having a relationship with a mortgage broker or a lender already all those sorts of things, uh, CIPs, deal history, anything like that. That way it makes our job easier to make sure that you look good to the seller. Yep. From your perspective, what's the best way for a person to get started in getting good in good with the brokers? I mean, it's all about relationships, right? But when you first get started, you end up on the back of everyone's list. What are some things that newer investors can do to separate themselves to get them towards the front of that list? Well, I think I think one of the the big things that you did specifically, both of you did, that was impressive to us was getting out there. You know, there's a bunch of people that'll say, "Hey, if you if you find anything, send it to me, and then I'll get out there." But there's a key difference between setting, you know, spending the money, getting out there, shaking hands, having coffee, discussing, and and understanding the real estate in advance of, you know, going forward on a transaction because there has to be a level of assurity, you know, because that that transaction is, is our business. And for someone entering for the first time, there's got to be a, a mutual level of, um, you know, a surety of close. Is there a specific number of closes that you want to see from a specific investor to the point where you really start trusting them and knowing that they're a closer? Um, I, I mean, people can, can surprise you. It could be their first deal and they can go, non-refundable at execution of purchase agreement, or someone can have 20 transactions and still be, you know, their a reputation can still precede them. So that's another thing that goes to, you know, how to differentiate yourself. I think when you start to set certain 
behavior patterns or habits. It's a small market, even Phoenix, you know, people talk. So there, there's ways to be, you know, quote unquote, good buyers. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't get something for uh, a reasonable problem. But, you know, there's people that, you know, if you're going to be dealing with them, that there's likely going to be a retrade at X, Y, and Z points, or, you know, they, they shop around for lenders or, you know, this or that. So. Okay. For the listeners out there that don't know what a retrade is, can you explain that? Yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's, it's the worst thing possible. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it, it's after, well, I mean, there's probably six or seven stages throughout the process that someone can quote unquote, get a retrade. You know, there could be a retrade even in the purchase agreement negotiations. Um, but more specifically, what we're talking about is when the buyer has done their due diligence inspection and has found some sort of physical defect that is something where it's cost prohibitive in where they were underwriting, whether it's for the loan or for themselves for certain yield thresholds and requires some sort of compensation via, uh, you know, I don't know, monetarily wise, if it's 15 grand to fix X, Y, and Z things, um, you know, that it, it varies greatly. It could, it could be something where, you know, the seller has to do these things before we finish trans- the transaction or, you know, occupancy has to meet this level or we get to look at all the units before closing. Uh, there's a number of ways to do it. Got it. And so are there retrades that are viewed at as okay from the brokers and others that are not? Because obviously the word retrade, it's a negative connotation and no one wants to be known as a retrader, but are there specific items where, you know, the seller or the owner, the buyer comes back and says, Hey, we have to do this. This is why, I mean, are those all looked at from a negative perspective? No, and that's a good question. I think the the thing we always try to do our best in terms of disclosure. Now there could be things that, you know, you, you take the seller for their word and the buyer, the buyer finds, you know, a defect in the, the, the sewage line. You know, I'm not scoping the sewer line before I take a listing, but if the seller tells me, Hey, I think it's in good shape. I'll convey that to the buyer pool and say, Hey, the seller has said this. Now, obviously there's no reps or warranties, do your own due diligence. So um, it's going to be like latent defects or major physical things that were not visible in your first tour. That's the big thing for us. If you come back and say, you know, the doors are, are, you know, I don't like the doors. Well, it's okay. You saw that in the first inspection. You should have factored that into your initial offering price. Right. Or if it's in the offering memorandum, right? If it says that it needs five brand new roofs and you don't underwrite for that and then come back later, that's just not something that's okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's all about disclosure. And if there's things that were unbeknownst to the broker, the seller, or the buyer in the agreement of a certain price or terms, um, you know, then there's, there's a discussion to be had. Right. I know the brokers do not select the final purchaser of a property. It's the owner of the property, but what are the top three things that you look for when you're selecting the top two or three buyers for your sellers? Yeah. Again, it goes back to positioning with the seller. Now, if a good broker will always have some sort of influence 
or can have influence on the seller. That's obviously why they picked you to be their advocate. Um, seeing the real estate is an absolute must. You know, there's people that'll write offers and then want some sort of feedback without having seen the real estate. So that's a huge, uh, huge thing. Proof of funds and then um, any sort of uh, like references or background. That way I can have a clear, succinct message to the seller as to why these people are, um, you know, legitimate buyers, not necessarily the buyer to be had, but someone that can close the transaction. Right. Okay. Tell us your top three pet peeves when dealing with investors. And I know there's probably a lot more in top three, but um, just shoot out the top three. They're probably the ones that I, I bother you <laughs> on the most. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I guess setting up a podcast at seven o'clock at night. Um, <laughs> I actually wrote these down. Let's see. Loose acquisition criteria has got to be one of my, my least, uh, or I guess my biggest pet peeves. You know, someone will say, Oh, look at any deal between two and 15 million. It's like, okay, that doesn't really help me. You know, I want, is it, you know, is there age specifications? Is there certain, certain unit mix requirements, geographical requirements, uh, more specifically yield thresholds. Cause then that allows me to kind of back out, underwriting based on what they're looking at from a loan, uh, things like that. It, it's again, I keep saying it, it's all about arming us to put you in a good position. And if you tell me, yeah, we'll buy anything that's two to 15 million in Tucson, it's, it's hard to, um, you know, credit that to the seller. Got it. Uh, my other two would be, I guess my other big one is poor communication. Uh, surprises kill deals. Um, not issues. So uh, I think, you know, when we had our transaction, there were not necessarily big surprises, but there was always a, a line of communication about what was being, what was being done. And so that those 10 to 15 hiccups, right. The lending having to be switched from Freddie Mac to Fannie Mae, that's, that's a big hiccup, but you know, there was a week or two in advance that we knew that there was a high probability that, that was coming, which allows me to prep the seller. Because there's a good chance something like that, if the seller decides then that they don't want to move forward on the transaction, we then lose that listing and then our competitor takes it and closes it. So those are my two big things. Loose acquisition criteria and poor communication. Yeah. So see, this is really great because I don't think a lot of investors think about it from the perspective of a broker. They just look at the brokers. Hey, they're one person in the way of getting this deal done, right? Or, or whatever it is, but they're really your teammate. It's about the relationship and yeah, open communication is really key because you guys need to work together from start to end to get the deal done. So. Yeah. I, I like to think of us as an extension of, of your business and you know, we always talk about that we're working for the seller, but in, in reality, we're working towards a successful transaction for all involved. And there's nothing, because realistically, what we're doing is interviewing for our next assignment. So hopefully I've, I've proven to you how well we work on the brokerage side so that someday when you do decide to sell, you know, you think of James. That's how we like to look at it. Yeah. Awesome. So I know you work in both Tucson and Phoenix now. So where do you see those two markets being in the next five years? Um, well, I guess I'll take Tucson just more specifically. Phoenix is a whole other animal, but um, because I've been working Tucson the last five years, it's, it's changed a lot. 
uh, for the better. Uh, I think you could argue that about a lot of places here in the Southwest, but Tucson for a long time, it lacked public and private investment. And, you know, we're starting to see a lot of growth from the, you know, major metrics that you want. So job growth, um, rent growth, and household income. That's translated into lower vacancy, the removal of concessions. Uh, Tucson is lucky it, the way, if, you know, if you're already an owner or looking for B and C class properties, you know, you also have the added benefit of there's no construction. Um, all the stuff that they are building is going to be low income tax credit housing or uh, some sort of senior or student housing. So, you know, they're not building B and C class apartments. So there's a lot of opportunity in Tucson still left to pick up, you know, I keep saying that these dinosaur owners there's people that have owned 10, 15, 20 years who haven't done any value add. And it's not that they don't think that it's viable. They just have been comfortable. The, that property that was the guy that owned since 1964, he owned it free and clear longer than I've been alive. And the property manager has been there 30 years. So, you know, there was no real pressure for him to do any sort of improvements. Uh, but now that you've got all these major signs of, of growth and improvement, you know, people in cap rate compression and other markets, Tucson's been the benefit of that. And so you're starting to see groups that are replicating their success in Phoenix now in Tucson. What strategies or creative things are you seeing from investors that have had the most success in Tucson specifically? Um, I, I guess my biggest advice to anybody looking at Tucson is to not over-improve. Um, and then the other thing to, to consider is, you know, if people are coming out of ownership in California, uh, I guess it's different, you know, because some of the listeners are probably looking to get in on the first, uh, in their first property. So it's a little different, but uh, the economics, the economic loss of properties in Tucson is going to be different than that of California. So California, you don't have a, a ton of move in, move outs, if any, you know, you're really paying people to move out of these apartments. You can do improvements in Tucson. You've got vacancy and turnover and bad debt and concessions. So uh, my biggest, um, I guess, precaution to potential buyers is to be very diligent in their underwriting and trust a good broker to, even if it's not my listing, I'll, I'll, people will send me stuff and say, Hey, what do you think? And I'll give them my honest opinion because, you know, there's certain people that may not have realistic ex, you know, expense expectations and, that can change off uh, a whole model. So, um, you know, looking at those sorts of things and uh, being diligent on, on what they're underwriting. Um, strategies, though, most success, don't over-improve. Like I said, um, you know, some people go in there and spend 15000 20000 a unit in an area that isn't going to get that premium. Uh, we sold a deal recently where, unfortunately, someone did that to a number of units and you know, for $150 premium, someone's like, well, I'll just take the old unit. So you just got to be, you really look at what your rent comps are, what Tucson has the benefit now of having quite a bit of properties that have been turned. So you can gauge a little bit better, but um, you know, that, that, that sort of strategy, differentiating yourself from drive-by traffic. One of the biggest uh, rental drivers, believe it or not, in Tucson is drive-by still. It's that referrals and Craigslist. So 
if you can look different than the typical beige or pink stucco apartment building, uh, I know it sounds kind of funny because if you drive through Phoenix, most of the properties have already gone through that transition, but Tucson is not. Yeah. All right. Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions. Are you ready? Yep. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz, and we'll start the conversation. All right, James, what is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you cannot do without? Um, gosh, I mean, obviously my phone, but that's, that's kind of an easy cop out. I <laughs> really like this program called Land Vision. Uh, I don't know how many people really have access to it. Uh, I think it's paid, it's provided by our company, but to me, it's, it's the most accurate ownership information and sales information by parcel. Uh, I pretty much use it daily. Great. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing and the main takeaway for our listeners? Um, yeah, I, I, my biggest mistake was, I guess, misrepresenting. I, I shouldn't say misrepresenting. I saw, I heard the seller say one thing and didn't do enough of my homework. And when it came down to the, the buying, uh, you know, that when the buyer finally went through and did his inspection, you know, it was, it was a gross misrepresentation of what was actually done to the roofs. And I was, it was early on in my career. So I didn't know the difference between refoaming and recoding. And, you know, it, it ended up costing the seller and there was a retrade. And, you know, I learned from my mistake is always double and triple check, you know, the information and, and make sure that you're still conveying the right, the right thing. Cause, uh, you know, again, communication and uh, surprises kill deals, and but issues do not. Yep. Due diligence goes both ways, huh? Exactly. All right. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Uh, well, Kyle alluded to it a little bit. I am actually going to be uh, positioning myself to work the Southeast Valley in Phoenix a little bit more. Um, it kind of fits into... Uh, my lifestyle with my my fiance and you know it, it's sad to be not necessarily leaving Tucson altogether but uh, it's, it holds a special place in my heart having gone to school there and uh, that's where I met my fiance and I've got five years of transaction experience there but to, to really move forward Phoenix is is a little different um, you've got a lot more market velocity and and um, transaction volume so you know just building that brand up again you know, where, where people pick up the phone and, and they know your number by heart, uh, you know, it takes a lot of front end work. So over the next couple of years, it's just trying to restart what I did and, and continue the success that I have in Tucson. Yeah. Well, congrats on that. I'm sure you're going to do great out there. Uh, finally, finally, where can people find out more about you, James? Um, so our Mark Smolichap website is pretty archaic. Uh, I would say LinkedIn, uh, James Crawley. Um, and then I don't know if you guys want to like put up my, 
my phone number or anything, my cell phone is 480-262-7449. Or I could be reached at james.crawley at marcusmillichap.com. Perfect. Well, first off, thank you uh, for all you've done for us. And also thank you for shedding some light for our listeners and answering uh, some questions that I'm sure a lot of new and active investors have when starting out. So really appreciate that interview, James. Yeah, of course. And if, if anybody ever needs anything in terms of advice or, or um, you know, I, I can be a resource in, in all that. I'm not one of those guys that's going to try and parachute in on something. You know, I, I'm an advisor first and uh, hopefully that relationship gets strong enough to, to help uh, people like yourselves get into the market. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, James. I appreciate Thanks, it. James. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to aptcapitalgroup.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode.